This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. The best fantasy hockey podcast in the world. Hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and as always, joining me is Brian Calm. Hey, Elon, and that statement is true. I think you and I have both listened to every hockey podcast in the whole entire world, and we are the best one. Hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I don't want to overstep. Right, we're not that hubristic. Yeah, but I think we're doing okay. I mean, we're putting out episodes every couple weeks in the summertime. Who's doing that? And we've got another big one for you guys this week. Last time we talked about some of the big trades that happened around the draft, and there's a whole bunch of leftovers, a lot of scraps that we still need to talk about. Some of these are pretty big, actually. I don't even think a lot of these moves are scraps. So we're going to talk about a few trades. We're going to talk about some of the big signings. What are their fantasy implications? What do you need to know in terms of all these players and how their draft position should be affected going into your fantasy draft next year? And we've also got a pretty cool announcement at the end of the show this week so stay tuned to the very end for that oh brian you like to tease people yeah it's not even like it's an announcement about an announcement that's going to come after but you know might as well start ramping up the anticipation now sure all right but also let's have some anticipation for the dallas stars next year because they've picked (laughs) up another score is that an okay segue Perfect. All right, so let's start with the most recent trade that happened that, you know, got a bit of buzz on our Facebook group. We had a fun chat about it. Patrick Sharp has finally gone from the Blackhawks. He's been traded to Dallas in exchange for Trevor Daly. And to me, you know, like, if this trade was made last year at the beginning of the year, I feel like we would have all been like, what the heck? Like, what a crazy trade. Like, Patrick Sharp is a superstar, and Trevor Daly is just some middling nobody defenseman. But last year, Trevor Daly definitely made a name for himself, and he got a lot of play on our podcast. And for good reason, right? He had 38 points in 68 games, which is great for a defenseman. That's a 46-point pace. Those are all-star defenseman numbers. So Trevor Daly really emerged, and I guess that earned him a trip out of town. And I guess there's good reason maybe Dallas wasn't happy with their defense overall. And obviously getting a guy like Patrick Sharp's really good for them. So we'll dig into if it's a good move for either team. But more importantly, Brian, let's start with Patrick Sharp. I assume he's going to crack the top six in Dallas, which all of a sudden becomes a very powerful top six. You know, with Ben, Sagan, Spezza. Now you throw in Patrick Sharp. Nishushkin is going to hopefully be coming into his own soon. I feel like it's going to be another great season of who's playing with who and who's on the top line with 
Ben and Sagan, and now we'll also be having interesting discussions about who's on the second line with Sharp and Spezza, unless maybe one of those two guys gets on the top line to form a powerhouse. Oh man, what's going to happen? Well, I think that's the most exciting prospect of this whole trade is what it means for the rest of Dallas's top six. But first, how about we'll just go over Sharp really quickly. I mean, we already covered him on our full season slumper episode where the conclusion was pretty much, you know, he may be on the precipice of a decline in numbers, but it shouldn't have been as sharp as the drop off that happened last year. Reaction? No, no reaction. Amongst 265 forwards who spent more than 5,000 minutes on the ice... Both at even strength and uneven strengths between 2007 and today, Sharp ranks inside the top 20 in goals and shots in that time, and just outside the top 30 in points. So he's been very good for a very long time, but that is all in the past, and we know that we shouldn't necessarily be thinking that the last seven years are going to predict the next seven years, which automatically makes us smarter than whichever Anaheim executive drew up the Ryan Kessler extension. (laughs) So then does this trade change the future for Patrick Sharp? And I think the most important thing to keep in mind, whether he was traded or not, is that nothing can change his age. He's getting pretty old by hockey standards, turning 34 this season, and it's only going to get harder for him to produce with every passing year. That said, we came out positive on Sharp when we broke down his recent struggles earlier in the offseason, and this trade does not do anything to change that. I would not expect as rough a ride as last year's 43 points, but I also wouldn't bank too heavily on a point-per-game expectation. Not saying it's totally out of the question, but I'm saying as he gets older, well, you know, a little less and less likely that he's able to put up the best numbers of his career. Sharp's value remains pretty much the same to me after this trade, but the value of his future line mates does get a decent little bump. Dallas forwards were not nearly as exciting to own last year as we thought they'd be. And if you weren't Tyler Sagan or Jamie Benn or the third guy playing with them on the power play or at even strength, then your fantasy value was not terribly impressive over the course of last year. And Sharp's acquisition changes that. With him and Spezza, the Stars top six has the potential to be a little more balanced. There's four quality guys in there now. And there are probably two attractive and open right wing spots for other players to pick up opportunities. And like you said, Elon, we've got Nichushkin, maybe some Brett Ritchie, maybe Patrick Eves. We always have Cody Eakin and Alish Hemsky, who we talked about a bit last year, jumping up and down. Yeah, so, you know, there's going to be like a feeling out period where we figure out exactly how that top six lands. But for now... At least we know that there is hope if you don't make it to that one spot on the first line that there's going to be a spot on the second line that will also help maybe a player who isn't as heralded or drafted as highly as some other top six talent. Hmm, Brian, lots of interesting stuff there. So you don't think that Ryan Kessler is going to be a productive forward when he's 37 years old? Well, Elon, actually, if you look closely at his underlying numbers, you'll see that no, no, there's no sort of translation possible that will suggest that Ryan Kessler is going to be worth that money. And Anaheim might need that money. We were talking about on the Facebook group how much money they've already committed, how much cap space is already gone for like three or four years out from now to Perry, Kessler, Geslav, Bieksa, who are all going to be like in their mid to late 30s. And still under contract. So the Ducks, with this deal, I don't know what they're banking on Kessler doing, but they're really also banking on the cap skyrocketing up some point in the near future because after making a bunch of really savvy moves, 
they've sort of put themselves in a really tough position, committing a large percentage of their cap space to a handful of aging forwards and defensemen. All right, listeners, and that's why you don't want to talk to Brian at a dinner party. You make a little joke, and he goes and gives you a serious, long, and insightful answer that you have to nod and smile for. But thank you for the analysis on Anaheim. And let's get back to Dallas. You say that your projection of Sharp from the Slumpers episode stays about the same, which if I recall was, you know, around 60 points, maybe a bit more. I would say one thing is that he's pretty much guaranteed to be in the top six, which is something that we wouldn't have been able to say in Chicago because he did get bumped to the third line a couple of times throughout the year. So maybe it's a little bit better for him. Yeah, that's a good point. We were so frustrated last year during his struggles that he was on the third line playing with Nobody who was helping him a lot, yet he was still, at times, able to carry the load on his shoulders. He's not going to have to do that this year. And I think Elon, if I said 60 points, it sounds to me like what might be the floor for Patrick Sharp. I would really be hoping for something more in the neighborhood of 65 this year. Yeah, that'd be pretty great. And I wonder if he's still some guy who will be considered somewhat of a sleeper pick since he had a bit of an off year last year, or maybe now this move to Dallas bumps up the hype and maybe he becomes overrated. I guess you'll have to let us know once we start drafting, which I couldn't come soon enough. But anyway, one last thing about Dallas. We got a question on our Facebook group asking if the acquisition of Sharp, what does that do for Jason Spezza's value? There's no point talking about Ben and Sagan, right? They're going to be amazing. No concerns about them. Spezza... He was a guy who ended up with pretty good numbers on the year, 62 points in 82 games, but there were stretches where he didn't do much. He had a nice end to the year, and, you know, a big problem was him when he wasn't playing on the first line, just like you mentioned. Now he gets his extra line mate. If he still stays on the power play, I'd assume it could only be good news for Jason Spezza, right? Yeah, and this goes with what I said about it bumping the value of everybody on that second line for the Stars. Spezza's season last year, like his numbers turned out looking okay, but he was super frustrating to a lot of owners. And like, for good reason, he actually put up his lowest even strength point total since the 2009 season. And that season, he actually played 200 minutes less than he did this year and scored just two fewer points at even strength. Even strength scoring was a huge problem for him last year. And what he was able to do did come somewhat alongside Ben and Sagan. So now he has somebody else to work with. Although you could argue he had Hemsky before, but Hemsky had struggles of his own. There's always health concerns. Every time somebody asks me about Spezza, I always have to say, well, you know, he's getting older and he's always had back problems. So that's still definitely a thing. But I would feel better today drafting Jason Spezza than I would have before the Stars acquired Sharp, for sure. Okay, and I know I said one more player, but one, one more player on Dallas, I think that needs to be mentioned. So if we look at this top power play, assuming that they go four forwards like they were doing for a lot of last year, and they go Ben, Sagan, Sharp, Spezza, that's pretty sweet. And it's especially sweet for whichever defenseman gets that spot. And you gotta wonder, is it gonna be John Klingberg? News came out recently that the Stars were saying he's like the next Carlson, potentially. So you'd think that means they're gonna give him the opportunity. And maybe we're on the precipice of a real breakout year for Klingberg. And he already had an amazing rookie year. 40 points in 65 games. Definitely nothing to sneeze at. That's actually pretty amazing. Those are at least Trevor Daly numbers, actually a little bit better. So is there any reason to not think that John Klingberg is going to be an elite fantasy defenseman next year? And how high should he be drafted? Like, where is he tiered with defensemen? Especially now that Daly's out of town, so he's got more of a chance to make it on the top power play. Yeah, John Klingberg's season was better than Daly-esque, Elon. It was actually really good. As a rookie, for all rookies since 2007, 
Klingberg's points per game rate tops the list in terms of players in their rookie season. Now, he was a few years older than some rookies tend to be. He was 22 years old, although that's not terribly old for a rookie defenseman. And I think it's a real good sign for things to come from him. 40 points in 65 games is impressive from anybody in the NHL. And he's definitely going to have the opportunity to keep doing that. I don't see anybody's name jumping off the list when I look at Dallas's defensive depth chart as somebody else who could supplant him as the power play quarterback or somebody who has a key role on power play one or at least a pretty good role on power play two as well. Daily moving to Chicago means more opportunity, more consistent opportunity for John Klingberg. We don't have to guess like every other week. Oh, he moved around. He has a few fewer minutes this week on the power play. Oh, what's happening on the depth chart? We don't have to worry about that as much. It looks like his role is a little bit firmer within the Dallas offense. Yeah, I guess if we were recording this going into last season, we'd be talking about Alex Goligoski, but he seemed to not be used at all on the power play last year. It was Daly and Klingberg near the end of the year, jumping between PP1 and PP2. So yeah, it's an exciting time for Klingberg. And, you know, I wonder where we'll be ranking him going into the season and then, you know, at the end of the year. Yeah, and we talked about Goligoski's shifting role, how, you know, a lot of the workload was put on his shoulders. He took on a lot of defensive responsibility, not exactly analogous to, but similar to the way Alex Petrangelo in St. Louis, you know, was known for being an offensive guy coming up and then stepped back into a more defensively responsible role because it's what he could carry. Goligoski seems to be serving that role somewhat for the Stars or being asked to serve it. And I imagine that he is not their go-to guy for offense because they want him available on defense, especially on this like super young defensive core who is mostly unproven. And it did a little bit to remedy that by getting Oduya out of free agency. But I still think the lion's share of the real responsibilities, as far as a two-way game goes, will fall to Goligoski. So he'll be an important part of that Stars team, just not necessarily the guy who gets to reap all the offensive rewards of the team's hard work. And if Klingberg had a 50-point pace last year, do you think that uh, we can expect 50 points this year? Well, you can try. I'm certainly not the sort of guy who's going to buy into that immediately after one good year. Although, you know, I am tempted and I can see why other people would. This is sort of like more of a personality or philosophy thing. If you want to draft him as a 45, 50 point guy, go ahead. I think there's some reason in there to do that. For me, I think I'd be hoping for 40 out of him when I'm drafting him in my league. And I admit that could be undervaluing him for sure. Well, and speaking of undervaluing, maybe that's a nice segue over to Trevor Daly, who last year, I remember at the beginning of the year, I had mentioned on like the first or second episode that, oh, Trevor Daly is getting a lot of minutes in Dallas and it looks like he's on the top power play. Maybe he's worth a look. He had a really strong start to the year. And I remember you sort of poo-pooed him and said, nah, don't worry about Daly. But he ended up having a pretty good year, right? 38 points in 68 games, like I mentioned before. Maybe not Klingberg-esque numbers, but still pretty good. Now that he goes to Chicago, do you think he'll be able to repeat this? I have a feeling you weren't going to expect him to repeat these numbers even in Dallas. On Chicago now, he's behind Duncan Keith on that power play. Like, he's not going to be the number one power play defenseman, I'd imagine, unless something crazy happens. So what do you think about Trevor Daly for next season? Well, I was really happy when he was traded because this ends my personal nightmare that was projecting the Stars' defensive core last season. It was a mess, and a lot of times I was hesitant on Daly and on Klingberg and still positive on Goligoski as I was still trying to figure everything out. And Daly really just did continue beating expectations all season long, even though I insisted that he actually wasn't who he was appearing to be because he was setting career highs in all offensive categories. 
accept shots. And as you know, upping everything but your shot count is a really suspect way of finding success. Daly essentially rode not only a fantastic power play that he got to QB, more or less by default, but he also had a shooting percentage that was double his career average. Now, it goes without saying that he won't likely have his great opportunities to produce offense in Chicago, where he'll almost certainly be a top four guy rather than a top two. And as you should know very well by now from listening to the show, shooting percentage is not a repeatable skill, meaning that last year's numbers don't at all suggest that Daly has suddenly figured out how to shoot more efficiently and is going to keep doing it again next year. His previous career high was 27 points. I wouldn't draft him as anything more than a 25 or 30 point guy, and I'm relieved that that's so much easier to say now that he's moved on from Dallas. Yeah, I guess it's nice when teams do us a bit of a favor in terms of our projecting. And yeah, that seems about right to me. I'd be very surprised if Daly's able to, you know, crack 35. Like maybe he could hit 30, like you say, maybe closer to 25. But yeah, that would be very impressive for him, especially because he's also aging, right? He's going to be 31, 32, which is my age. So it's kind of awkward to say. But for a player in the NHL, I guess he's getting up there. You don't expect his best years to be ahead of him. Though other defensemen have done it. If one position is going to have their best years near the end of their career, it could be a defenseman. Actually, I don't know if that's really true. I wonder if you're just trying to make yourself feel better as an aging podcaster to think you'll have (laughs) just as good production as you move on into your 30s. Yeah, it must be that. But okay, let's talk about another aging player who is on the move. How about Milan Lucic, who got traded to the Los Angeles Kings after playing his whole career in Boston? He was traded for Martin Jones in a pick, and Martin Jones now is on the Sharks, and maybe we'll get to him. Probably not this week, but we'll talk to him on the goalie smorgasbord episode, the goal smorgasbord episode, which will come up in a Smorgolisborg. few weeks. every time. Yeah, exactly. But okay, let's talk about Lucic. He definitely had an off year last year, right? 44 points in 81 games. And that's as opposed to 59 points the year before. And then he had 61 points in 11-12 and 62 the year before that. So he had been somewhat of a reliable 60-point player. And then last year, things really fell apart. 44 points, only 18 goals. And we didn't talk about him yet as a slumper. So I guess now's a good time to even just wonder what happened last year. And also, do his numbers look like they'll be getting better by going to L.A.? Or is that the kind of thing that helps or hurts a player? I think the change of scenery might at least help Lucic stagnate. Maybe that's the best way I can put it. Because Lucic's even strength production has been falling steadily since the lockout shortened 2012-13 season. And last year's tumble was particularly rough. I know his overall numbers didn't look terribly out of place, but at even strength, he really struggled. And a big part of that is because he's not much of a puck carrier. In fact, he's barely does it successfully at all. And so last year, he didn't have David Krejci to do it for him because that's what he needs. He needs somebody to move the puck forward and create scoring chances that he can cash in on. In LA, there's one of two things that's going to happen. Most likely, he's going to end up in a top six role, And in that case, he should have a competent centerman available to him with whom he can score a reasonable amount of points, or he's going to end up outside the top six, in which case he's really going to struggle. But considering that LA traded for him, I definitely think the former scenario in the top six is the one that you should consider when you're figuring out where you're going to draft him and what you can expect from him. The thing with Lucic that really hurts him in terms of fantasy value in my own personal mind is that he's just been overranked in fantasy for so long because of his penalty minutes. But in my leagues, he's usually been the guy who gets taken way too early by somebody else, and I let that happen to someone else. 
or he gets plucked by auto-draft while every other present owner picks the guys above and beneath him in, like, the automatic rankings. So I'd say that moving to L.A. hopefully guarantees Lucic a solid centerman, and their strong possession game that they've already established in L.A. should definitely help him out. I don't think it changes a whole lot for him, but it does provide hope that a further point-scoring slide isn't a necessarily sure thing that's in the cards for him. If your league doesn't count penalty minutes, and it shouldn't, by the way, then Lucic is simply like a slightly above average point producer. 55 points is probably a good conservative projection. 60 points if you want to get hopeful. Well, I'm checking out Daily Faceoff, and of course this is all just speculation, but they've got him on the first line with Kopitar and Gabrik, which is not a bad place to be, but obviously we have no idea how the lines will shake out in LA. If he plays with Jeff Carter and Tyler Toffoli, that's not too bad also. So yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on, but you're saying that even if he is on the top line and like gets on the top power play, sort of if everything works out opportunity-wise, you still don't expect more than 55 points? Well, I said you could hope for 60, and I'm sure some would make the argument that you could even look a little higher, but like over his career, he's roughly a 60-point guy, and I think anyone who thinks he's a ton better than that is just swayed by his penalty minutes and his, you know, intangibles and all the stuff that goes along with that. I really feel comfortable more in the range of 55, 60 points, and, you know, Boston hasn't always been known for necessarily being a high-scoring team, and he's been able to put up decent point totals with them, so moving to L.A., doesn't necessarily concern me in that they're also a team that doesn't score a ton of goals, but it'll be an interesting switch. And like, if you want to go back to intangibles, he seems like a guy who's really motivated by things like these, like a really emotional sort of player. So hopefully he takes this personally, that he was traded away from the team that he's played for and loved his whole life and can do very good things with the Kings this year. Okay, and I guess with Lucic gone, that leaves some spots open over on the Bruins, and one player they picked up recently was Jimmy Hayes. They traded Riley Smith for Jimmy Hayes, so now we're talking about a couple of players on a tier below the types of guys like Patrick Sharp and Milan Lucic, who we've been discussing, but, you know, maybe not. Like, Riley Smith, for example, he had 51 points in 82 games a couple of seasons ago. Then last year, I guess, was a bit of a decrease, 40 points in 81 games. But still, he seemed like a guy who was fantasy-relevant somewhat and sort of was on and off people's rosters. We talked about him a bit throughout the season. It's a bit surprising maybe that Boston trades him away, but I actually don't know much about Jimmy Hayes, who's the guy they got from him. He was on Florida, and he also had a short run of productivity where I remember that everyone was talking about, ooh, I wonder if I should pick up Jimmy Hayes. And he had a decent season at the end of the year, 35 points in 72 games, so pretty much a 40-point pace. And that was his most impressive season to date in his pretty short career so far. So on paper, it seems like Boston again gets the short end of the stick, at least offensively. Maybe Hayes offers something else. But Brian, do you have any thoughts on this trade and if either of these players should be drafted by people in next year's fantasy drafts? I feel like these are more watch list type guys. They could be late round picks in somewhat deeper drafts, but otherwise they'll generally bounce in and out of free agency as they did last year in my own pool. I think the guy who probably might carry a little more value of the two is Riley Smith because, as you said, Elon, he did have that good season, 51 points in 82 games when he first was traded to Boston in the Tyler Sagan trade. Jimmy Hayes, on the other hand, he had 17 points in 25 games at one point last year in the months of November and December, and that got a lot of people excited, and I think he was on my watch list essentially the whole year from that point on, but the key is that he was on my watch list, not on my roster. In fact, I think I probably swapped Smith for Hayes myself 
a couple times. These are both depth guys who could step up. Each of them has the potential. Like, I like what Jimmy Hayes seems to have to offer, but we'll see what his role is with Boston and what kind of opportunity he sees. And same goes for Riley Smith. I think we'll really have to see if, with their new team, they can step up a little bit, if they're given a little bit more responsibility. But until then, again, late round, like fringe draft picks, but guys that you probably want to keep your eye on over the first few weeks of the season to see what they're doing with their new teams. Yeah, I also am a bit more excited about Riley Smith. I feel like, you know, as we talked about last year, the Florida Panthers are an up-and-coming team, and I think that Smith could fit nicely in the top six. I feel more confident about him getting a good opportunity as opposed to Hayes. Like, theoretically, I could see, like, Barkov, Huberdeau, and, say, Yager on the first line, or or maybe Bjugstad, but, you know, you have Bjugstad and Peary, and then maybe Riley Smith rounds out a pretty, you know, nice top six, I would think, and I think that would be a good space for Smith to be in. Boston, I know everyone's talking about how Boston's really blowing it and how they're not happy with the offseason moves they've made. But at the end of the day, Jimmy Hayes will still have to compete with guys like Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand, David Krejci, David Pasternak's up and coming. You know, Louis Erickson's still there. Ryan Spooner had a nice year last year. Also, the signing of Matt Belisky, which I guess we could get to in this episode. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of competition for Jimmy Hayes in terms of where he's going to be able to slot in on the Bruins lineup. Yeah, the positive I'd say for Jimmy Hayes is that he's going to get a good centerman. He's going to be centered by either Patrice Bergeron, which is unlikely, David Krejci, which is maybe possible, or Ryan Spooner, who's an up-and-coming guy himself. So he won't be on an island in Boston. There will still be opportunity. I don't see his opportunity being terribly better or worse than Smith's. In fact, like just when I think of these two guys and like this sort of player that they were to me last season, very, very much the same in terms of fantasy value. So we'll see if one can edge out the other. Okay, and since I mentioned him, we might as well stick with the Bruins. Matt Bolesky signed that big contract. It was like five years, 19 million. And you know, I'm thinking to myself that you're not going to like this move. I know you've already been critical of the moves the Bruins have made in the offseason. And this one is interesting. Like, he had 32 points in 65 games last year, so half point per game. The year before, 24 points in 55 games. I'm looking at his stats, and I don't see any noteworthy seasons as of yet. I guess last season, 22 goals in 65 games was pretty good on Anaheim. He was a fantasy-relevant guy. He was a guy that was nice to have on your roster, but definitely a lot of hype now after signing this big contract and going to the Bruins. Do you think he'll be able to live up to it, or is he going to continue to be a half-point-per-game guy and a fringe fantasy asset at best? Well, this is the second year that Bolesky has been on like the fringes of our fantasy radar. I know in the first season of the show, we brought him up a couple times and said, well, when he's playing with Perry and Getzlaff, keep an eye on that depth chart, because if he is, he's a guy that could be of value to you as the third wheel on that line. Last year, we kind of went into the year saying that at times, but then it turned out that he did have some legit chemistry with Ryan Kessler, scoring most of his even strength points with Ryan Kessler. So you can't say that he's going to miss pairing Getzlaff a ton in Anaheim because that's not who he found his success with most recently, but he did find a lot of his success due to a pretty high shooting percentage. He scored on more than 15% of his shots over the course of his career, which has spanned over 300 games. He's taken almost 600 shots. He's generally about a 10% shooter and a 5% jump in shooting percentage is not something that's like reasonable to expect two years in a row, unless he's totally turned over a new leaf, but I don't think that's the case with Matt Bolesky. The other concern, as was shown by an article in Travis Yost on tsn.ca just before free agency began, 
was his possession numbers were super suspect. A lot of his teammates played better without him on the ice, and that's not something you ever want to hear about a player. It's not necessarily something that impacts the scoring. For his scoring, the shooting percentage is definitely the more salient concern. But I think with Boston, you know, he'll get a reasonable amount of opportunities since he was a big acquisition for them in an offseason that was filled with a lot of, well, bad news, you know, mostly according to their fans and other hockey observers outside of Boston. So I think he'll get his fair shake of opportunity there. And, you know, he is a guy who can convert every now and then, but I don't see him as being much more than a half a point per game player over the course of the rest of his career at this point. So, Brian, if he was available and you were near the end of your fantasy draft next year, would you grab Bolesky? Is he the guy that you would take a flyer on, or would you rather leave him for someone else? It really depends on who else is available. Like, if it's, say, like, Bolesky or Kuznetsov or somebody else who has, like, say, 60-point upside, maybe... Uh, I would probably take the other guy just because I think it would be a little more exciting to own them. Bolesky, you probably know what you're getting, maybe about 50 points, and that's nothing to sneeze at, but generally that means you're still on the fringes of fantasy relevance. So I would maybe try and swing a little harder for the fences if I was choosing between Bolesky and, say, a deep sleeper, knowing that there might be plenty of guys like Bolesky available in free agency, depending on how deep your pool is. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. You don't expect him to blossom into a 60, 70 point guy at this point. So maybe if you're near the end of your draft, that's your time to go for people who might surprise. And I'm thinking now let's shift over to defense and talk about a really big signing that happened. We haven't mentioned it yet on the podcast, but Mike Green is no longer a Washington Capital after being there for his whole career and being a real stud, right? Like there were times, maybe not last year, but like a few, couple seasons ago, I remember thinking of him as, you know, one of the top fantasy defensemen to own, you know, when he was playing with Ovechkin on the power play and the Capitals were really firing on all cylinders. Last year, he actually had a great year, right? 45 points in 72 games. These are the similar numbers that we've been saying about like Klingberg, who we're saying is amazing. But he wasn't the number one guy there, which is all the more impressive that he was able to achieve these numbers. John Carlson definitely supplanted him as the number one guy in Washington. And obviously that let the... Capitals let him go away in free agency and he gets signed by the Detroit Red Wings who have had Nicholas Cronwall as their number one guy for a while now and really no one else exciting on defense. I can't think of any other defenseman on Detroit for a while that I've been interested in owning fantasy-wise aside from Cronwall. Green definitely falls into that category now and Brian, I'd love to know what his ceiling is. Like He had, like I said, this great year last year, a 51-point pace if he would have played every game, though it is worth noting that it's been a long, long time since he has played every game. Actually, looking back through the past few years, he's had 72, 70 games. Then there was a lockout season, but you know, 32, 49 games, 75. You have to go back to 07, 08 for the last time Mike Green played over 80 games. He had 82 games that year and had 56 points. And that's probably back when he was at his peak. The year after that, he had 68 games and 73 points. But again, we're talking about 08, 09 here. What can 2015, 16 Mike Green do for your fantasy roster now that he's a Detroit Red Wing? Well, he can score you points. He's a proven point scorer, and even though his star has fallen a bit, and, like, of course it has from 73 and 76-point seasons, that's a really tough thing to maintain, even though he did it in a pretty strong way. Like, there wasn't a lot of suspect numbers surrounding those seasons, but what he is today is still a good point-scoring defenseman who, in Detroit, uh, I was reading Winging It in Motown, which is the SB Nation Detroit Red Wings blog, and they had a really good point 
mentioning that Green in Washington was saddled with pretty bad defensive partners, meaning he was also saddled with their errors or shortcomings when he was trying to score points for himself. In Detroit, they're speculating that he's going to be paired with Danny DeKaiser, who has been fantastic defensively, and you wonder if that gives Green a little more rope to be able to go out and do his thing, and he also becomes easily the most offensively productive defenseman on Detroit's blue line. He is unquestionably their top offensive option, and I think they're going to treat him that way too. I'm surprised you say that. Like, unquestionably, like, Cronwall isn't even in the conversation? Okay, fair question. Well, in all situations, if you're counting even strength and power play time, Green is 7th in the league amongst defensemen over the last three years who've been playing regularly in points per 60 minutes. Cronwall is not too much farther down the list, but there still is a fair gap between the two. If you look at just even strength scoring over the last three years, then you'll see that the gap in their ranking actually grows quite a bit. You've got Green still up at seventh in the league in even strength points per 60 minutes over the last three years, and Cronwall is all the way down at 56th. In the league. So, yeah, I think Green is definitely the most legitimate offensive weapon that the Red Wings have right now. On defense. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. (laughs) All right, so here, let's have some fun here. Let's say you're in a one year league next year. You don't have to worry about keepers. Who would you rather have, Mike Green or John Klingberg? I knew that was coming. (laughs) I was almost going to lead with it myself, but I was going to leave it to you. I'm glad you picked it up. I would take Mike Green. Who would you take? Well, it's tough. Like, I guess this comes down to the philosophy thing, like you said. Like, Klingberg probably has more upside. Is that a crazy thing to say? I guess for a guy like Mike Green who had 73 points, maybe it's crazy to say that someone else has more upside. But I feel like Green should be good for, like, 40, 50 points. Like, I think 50 points is, like, what you could probably expect from Mike Green, which is awesome. And Klingberg, you know, that would be awesome if he could get 50 points, but he did have a 50-point pace last year. And if this year, you know, he does take the stranglehold of the power play, and if he really is the Eric Carlson-esque player that his management seems to be saying he is, I guess he could have more, but I guess at the end of the day, I do agree with you that Mike Green is more of a sure thing to get more points. Uh, But it would be fun to roll the dice, but no, I would take Mike Green, at least for next season. Yeah, I'm not saying it's out of the question for Klingberg to outscore Green, and that might sound ridiculously silly by the end of the season, you know, if we hit the extreme on either way of Klingberg's production. If you ask me, like, if I want Mike Green in Detroit over Mike Green in Dallas, I'd probably ask for Mike Green in Dallas in terms of how many points he can score there. I like Klingberg's situation a touch more than Mike Green's, but I like Mike Green more than John Klingberg at this point in their career. I'm open to Klingberg showing me what he's got, but it's going to take another year of doing it before I buy in wholeheartedly. Right, and though it does sound like you're saying that you think they're close enough, at least, that if it's a keeper league, maybe then you would lean towards Klingberg if you thought you had a spot open for a defenseman? That's a really good question. I don't know if I'm ready to answer that. I'm still trying to tease apart like the Klingberg skill from the Klingberg hype and that's why I'm really eager to see like another three or four months of him actually on the ice rather than just a lot of talk about one really good season that he had as a rookie not to take anything away from that at all that's not what I'm doing if I was drafting in a keeper league you know my green is turning 30 this year I think like I would really go down the list of my tiebreakers for like making decisions like look at the rest of my roster composition am I going to need to fill this keeper spot again soon? Am I going to have another player coming up in a couple years? If I was, I could probably still take Green if I knew I could replace him well. If I was unsure, if I was really thinking that this is a 
once-in-a-lifetime chance to get Klingberg a good young defenseman and hang on to him for several years, then I'd take him. I'm going to say super context-dependent, and I will not commit to an answer. Fair enough. Okay, and how about to end the show? I've got a list here of a bunch of the remaining free agent signings that we haven't talked about yet. How about I'm going to run through the list really quickly, and then you and I will each pick the one that we think will be the most impactful next season. And I'm talking about only players who signed with new teams, so I'm not going to be including like Mike Ribeiro re-signing with Nashville, even though I think that's actually pretty interesting, or Drew Stafford re-signing with Winnipeg, who I know that you and I feel differently about, or Devin Dubnik. Okay, now I'm going to talk about forwards and defensemen. Here we go. Here's the list that I have. Carl Soderberg signed by the Avalanche. Michael Froelich signed by Calgary. There's Justin Williams, who was signed by the Capitals, but I think we covered him last week, so maybe let's leave him out. Bieksa, who you mentioned previously, got signed by the Ducks. Palmieri, signed by the Devils. Vermette, back to Arizona. Arcobello to Toronto. Parento to Toronto. Brad Richard, signed by Detroit. Blake Como, signed by the Avalanche. Cody Hodgson to Nashville. Chris Stewart, signed by Anaheim. Andre Sekera to the Oilers. Beauchemin to Colorado. Paul Martin to San Jose. There's Oduya to Dallas, which just happened. And a couple other defensemen, Dylan to San Jose, Irwin to the Bruins. I think we're getting pretty far down the list. There are a bunch of goalies, which, again, we'll talk about later. But, Brian, of that list, which one do you think will make the most impact going into next season? Offensively, I like P.A. Parento in Toronto. It took me a really long time to give up on him last year. And, you know, I only did when I saw that it was just totally clear as day that he was in Michelle Terrian's doghouse and he wasn't getting out anytime soon. I think in Toronto, they've signed a whole bunch of guys who they're saying, look, this is your chance. It's a one-year contract. You can establish yourself as a full-time NHLer. Work towards your next contract with us. We'll give you every opportunity that there is because there's a ton of it to go around on this team. And I think P.A. Parento is in a pretty good position to take advantage of that situation. I don't think that he's finished as a player. I think he still has more to give. Of all the guys you mentioned, he's probably the guy I would take first if I'm looking for offensive production. If we're talking about like overall impact for their team, though, I feel like Andre Sekera is going to be a real stabilizer in Edmonton, somebody that they've needed for a long time now who can step in, shoulder a heavy load, someone who's done it before. And yeah, he has that sort of rep from a couple years ago as being someone who can also put up points, but that's not what I'm looking to him for. If you do have Andre Sekera on your team, you're probably looking more at getting blocks than you are points. So those are my two picks. Who are yours? Okay, well, before I tell you mine, I think that the Parento pick is very interesting. I'm very surprised you said him. I feel like I would have guessed that you would have had him way, way down. I would have had him way down myself, but he's an interesting player, right? Like, it's not too long ago. In 2011, 2012, he had 67 points in 80 games for the Islanders. And then the next year, he had 43 points in 48 games for Colorado. So that's just you know, a couple seasons ago, and he was a real stud player. Then after that, he had 33 points in 55 games with Colorado. And then last year, like you said, in Montreal, just a big disaster, 22 points in 56 games, got benched a lot. And now he goes to Toronto, though, where I think that's a place where I don't expect much scoring to happen. I can't imagine drafting P.A. Parento in my league. I think I'll let someone else do that. Maybe I'll let you draft him ahead of me in the Keeping Carlson Fantasy League, which we may be talking about soon. I'll draft Parento, and then you can take Bolesky. Uh, I'd rather have Bolesky than Parento, so maybe that could be our bet for next year. Maybe not too exciting. Or maybe I'll take this guy who I think is going to make the biggest impact. I'm going to go with Michael Froelich going to Calgary. I think that Froelich 
became somewhat noteworthy over the last couple of years. He's had two consecutive seasons of having 42 points in 82 games over in Winnipeg. Actually, it was 81 games the year before. But, you know, so basically a half point per game player, a little bit more. But that was in Winnipeg. Now he goes to Calgary. And Calgary, you know, I feel like there's a spot for him. Obviously, this is the kind of thing we'll have to see. But Frolik is also 27 years old, just entering his prime. And Calgary's got, you know, Monaghan, Godreau, and Hoodler probably for their top line. But, you know, maybe then you've got Backlund, Frolik, and Sam Bennett on the second line. And maybe Frolik could also make some impact on the power play. Like, who knows? But he's always been a decent shot taker. He had 206 shots last year with Winnipeg, and I don't know, I feel like he'll be a guy who people will want on their rosters at some point during next season. Well, the line on for Leak is that he is a really good two-way forward. You can count on him for sure for about 40, 45 points, and solid defensive play to go on top of that. So we'll see how Calgary uses him. If they want to really have him, you know, help shelter their younger players and be the defensively responsible guy on a line or if they let him run a little bit looser with the top six. So that'll be a role thing, you know. I don't know. I feel like if he is being asked to play defensively responsibly, I think maybe 50 points would be a fair estimate for him. But I'll I'll give it to you. I I like looking at him. I like watching him play. And I wish him nothing but the best ever since, like, he had a couple good seasons with Florida. And then he moved on to Chicago, where he played a very necessary bottom six role. Then he did it again in Winnipeg. And there's no doubt to me that he will do very well for himself in Calgary. One player that I thought you would mention, Elon, is Carl Soderberg. I thought you'd like him in Colorado. Well, I've actually been reading a lot of people saying that they don't expect him to do that well. And he's a guy we talked about on the podcast a bit over the last couple of years. I remember you even mentioned him a few times as a good guy to pick up while he was on Boston. But you don't like him over in Colorado? You don't like Colorado very much, from what I could tell. That's not true at all. Like, all of last season, when everybody was asking, oh, should I trade Duchesne or Landeskog or O'Reilly? And I was, no, no, hang on to those guys. They're great. Your beef with me was about Tongay, who I thought would sort of fade away last year. And he didn't. You were right. He kept shooting super efficient, as he has his whole career. And he had a really good season. So I think maybe you're confusing my feelings about Tongay or my projections about Tongay with the rest of the avalanche. I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see what Soderbergh's role is in Colorado. I feel like you can count on him to be, you know, at least a half point per game player. And if he gets the opportunity on the right line in the top six, then maybe he can do more, especially with some power play help. But Again, we'll have to see where he fits in on the depth chart there. Yeah, well, he had 48 points two seasons ago in 73 games with Boston. Last year, 44 points in 82 games. So, you know, right as you're saying, like a bit above a half point per game player. And we'll have to see where he slots in in Colorado. If you listening think that there's another player who we've missed that's moved around during the offseason that you think is going to make an impact, tweet at us at Keeping Carlson. Let us know who we missed. I'm very curious to hear. Or you could let us know on our Keeping Carlson patron-only Facebook group. All you have to do is sign up to be a patron at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. And actually, I'll just thank a few patrons who've signed up recently. This isn't all the people who signed up, but the people who uh, either gave us permission to say their names or they have common first names, so it doesn't matter if I just say that. But thank you very much to Christian Middleton, Chad Gurney, and Corey, John, and Ryan for signing up. We definitely appreciate your patronage. If you have no idea what we're talking about, we've updated the patron information page. So check it out, keepingcarlson.com slash patron to find out all the benefits you can get by signing up to be a patron of Keeping Carlson. As we said before, we've taken it down to a dollar a month to get full patron benefits. It's usually $5, but for just $1 over the course of the summer, you can join the Facebook group. You can come to PatronCast and ask us your questions live. 
you can get a recording of those patron casts. And, like, the Facebook group has just been so active lately. It's so nice. Like, ever since UFA Day, it's been super busy. And we really appreciate everyone participating there. And we'd love it if you, the non-patron as of today, would come and join us too there. Just come see what it's all about. Keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Right, yeah. And speaking of patron cast, we still have to schedule one for July. So that'll probably be coming in the 20s of July, maybe around July 27th. So keep an eye open for that if you're a patron. And Elon, just before we close out the show, I want to give an answer to your question that's going to really annoy you in two ways. Because one, it doesn't answer your question. And two, well, we'll get to it. But the player who has not yet been signed that's oh, going no. to change teams, Seven. who's going to make a really Ugh. great impact with a new team, Alex Semin. Let's not forget him when training camp rolls around. Hopefully, like, he's more than, like, a tryout. I really think he's still got a lot to give in the NHL. I really do. And Brad Boyce, too, I think, has an opportunity to contribute to whatever team he joins. Assuming he does eventually join a team, there's really little excuse for these two guys to still be available. It's definitely a buyer's market this time around in free agency. These guys are sort of the victims of that. Keep an eye on where they go. And depending on where they go, I might just change my answer to your previous question, Elon, about which free agent who we haven't talked about that we like in terms of what they can do to produce in fantasy value. Well, (laughs) okay, well, I hear what you're saying about Brad Boys. He had a decent year last year, 38 points in 78 games, pretty much a half point per game pace. I disagree with Semin. He was so brutal. 19 points in 57 games. Got benched on Carolina also. Like, how do you get benched on Carolina? You can't be a very good player. Like, maybe it's an issue with the coach. Maybe things will change on a new team. I am not going to be drafting Semin. But just for you, I'll add him to my watch list if he gets signed. I really appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, and before we go, we mentioned that we had an announcement. An announcement about an announcement. Do you want to go ahead and say it, Brian? No, Elon, you do the honors. Okay, here it is. Next episode, which will be happening in two weeks, we're going to be dedicating the whole episode to planning and organizing the ultimate fantasy pool. So we're going to be discussing all the things you need to consider when setting up a pool in terms of the scoring and the keepers and what type of draft to do. We're going to get into all of that. Brian and I will give our opinions of what makes a really good fantasy pool. And then at the end, we are going to be dropping officially the Keeping Carlson patron-only fantasy pool, which will be the best pool of all time. And it's going to last till the end of history and of course we're going to be setting up that pool based on our discussion that we have about how to make an awesome pool so that's the announcement and we're very excited to start talking about this pool that we're going to be organizing that we hope will be awesome i think also just the episode itself is going to be great so make sure you tune in to the next episode in a couple of weeks and if you have any ideas you want to share about what you think it takes to make a really good fantasy pool there's a certain feature that maybe a lot of people haven't thought of that you think really makes a pool go to the next level please let us know again on twitter at keeping carlson we love to hear from you that's the announcement brian was it worth the hype Well, we'll leave that up to the listeners to decide. But again, keeping Carlson Ultimate Fantasy Hockey Pool League, whatever, it's going to be amazing. We're going to come out with all the details on the next episode. So stay tuned. Yeah, and if you're wondering, but what if more than like 20 people want to be in the pool? Is there too many people for a pool? Don't worry about it. We've got it all figured out. It's going to be fine. It's going to be good. Okay. Let's wrap up the show. Hopefully you liked this episode. you got lots of things to tweet at us about, about your ultimate pool, which players we've missed. So we want to hear from you. Last time I'll mention it, at Kevin Carlson on Twitter. Brian, great episode as always. And before we 
close it out, why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? I'm going to queue up the outro music in edit. Future Elon, queue up that outro music. This show was researched with help from War on Ice, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Winging It in Motown, TSN.ca's Scott Cullen and Travis Yost, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Thank you, sir. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks about what you think it takes to make the ultimate fantasy pool. What should we do until then, Brian? Until then, I suggest that you keep on keeping Carl Sand.